Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered, the podcast that examines and explains the inner workings of the insurance industry. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner of the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I will discuss an aspect of the insurance market with a leading individual from the insurance world. And for this episode, we have Chris Moore with us, and our topic will be the insurance of the sharing economy. Chris has been a casualty underwriter at Apollo Syndicate 1969 for the last seven years. Uh, But in January this year, he was appointed as head of iBot, which is Apollo's special purpose arrangement at Lloyd's that specializes in underwriting solutions for innovative companies in the sharing economy. So, Chris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. First of all, could you come talk us about your your, your journey into insurance? Is it something that you've been wanting to do since a (laughs) 10-year-old? Or, or is it a bit more, bit more recent than that? Yeah, I suppose now that I know um, about the insurance industry and all that it has to offer, I wish it was more deliberate than it, than it probably was. Um, I've, uh, I've always liked mathematics, and that's what I studied at university at Bath. I uh, always, always enjoyed problem solving. And probably while I was at university, I wanted to go into actuarial or be a quant or something like that or something in finance. And Luckily for me, I, I ended up in a career in insurance, and it's it's just an industry that um, probably doesn't do the do the best job of promoting itself. But once you're in the industry, it's it, you can use so many different skill sets and get exposure to so many different walks of life, cultures, and and different businesses because insurance is such a key purchase that yeah, it's it's just an ever given industry for me. I, I really do love what I do. Brilliant. Well, that's great to hear. Um, and I also saw, kind of looking at LinkedIn, that you were the Bath University first 15 rugby. Is that right? You were... Yeah, I, I probably spent a bit more time on the rugby pitch than I, than I should have and, and not enough time in the classroom. But rugby, as, as, a, as a very passionate Welshman, is, is something I care a lot about and got to play at university and, and made some great friends there. Oh, brilliant. Anyway, kind of much as we would love to talk about rugby for a bit more, we're here to talk about the, the sharing economy. Right from the outset, I just want to know, how do you define the sharing economy? Is it just a nice way of saying the gig economy or is it something slightly different? Yeah, um, I suppose I, I tend not to use the, the term gig economy as much as I do sharing economy, but the two are somewhat interchanged. The gig economy, uh, I think, tends to focus on people as a profession. Uh, so people that are utilising different sharing economy platforms to, to make a living. Um, whereas the sharing economy for me is, is really a connecting marketplaces where they can share all different types of assets and products and services. You know, things like uh, accommodation sharing platforms, you know, they're utilizing assets that, that are currently not being used, right? So you might have rooms in certain houses being rented out or you're renting out a home when, when you're away or you're just not using it. And then for vehicles with, you know, things like peer-to-peer car sharing, there's some, some stats that 98% of the time a vehicle sits idle on, on someone's driveway. And the sharing economy is completely changing that and, and allowing for a, a utilization of those assets to a, to a much higher level than they ever have been, and giving people access to vehicles that they otherwise wouldn't have and, and connecting people that otherwise wouldn't connect. So a lot of accommodation sharing is, is more than just you know, a, a place to stay. It's, it's embracing a culture. If you stay in a Hilton or a Marriott, you know, the hotel room that you stay at pretty much looks the same in Singapore as it does in, in London. Whereas if you stay at somebody's, you know, a, a Parisian flat versus, you know, a flat in London or, or somewhere in New Orleans, they're completely different and you get a real taste of the culture, the experience. So 
yes, I think it's it's a, a form of employment for for some people, so the gig economy. But the sharing economy is much more than just employment and, and revenue generation. It's about connecting people and marketplaces. Okay, I mean, that, that's that's very helpful. Thank you. And I, you mentioned transportation, um, share, car sharing, yep. and what have you. Um, and obviously, the, the traditional model for that is you own a car, you drive a car, no one else drives it, and that's how insurance is based. But uh, could you talk us through ways in which uh, you're seeing that traditional model being disrupted by these startup companies? The the disruption seems to be twofold. So uh, it is is fascinating. If you see some of the biggest car companies in the world, you know, have openly said they do not envisage selling cars in the next five years. Toyota, arguably the biggest car company in the world, have stopped calling themselves a car company. They now refer themselves as a mobility company. And it's because of that disruption to car ownership. If you look at Generation X versus millennials, the Generation X was very much fascinated by assets. It was very much about owning your first house. And, and as soon as you turn 17, it's certainly true for me, you know, how quickly can I get down and, and start my driving lessons so I can own a, a really uh, poor car and I can start driving around and I have independence. Millennials are not fascinated by assets. And, and the best way it's been described to me is we care more about experiences than assets. And so, you know, for, for a millennial, it's why would I rush out and buy a car that's not very nice when I can lease a car on a short-term basis or I can rent a car and it's the exact car that I want at the exact moment in time to, to maximize my experience. And it's this sort of cultural shift that these car companies are, are embracing. And the way they're embracing it is through these new subscription programs. So if I can give you an example of what, how they're trying to target the, uh, the new consumer Rather than you having your car and it's part of your driver and you use it for every trip you have, now that the, these car companies are saying, well, if you become a subscriber to me and you love my brand, whatever car company you love, that, that's your brand. You can now have these, these subscriptions where you can, you can play around with the vehicles that you have on a, on a really fluid basis. So you might say, I need the SUV from Monday to Friday because I do the school run and then you know we do the shopping and, and I need to commute to work. But on the weekend, this particular weekend, the kids are with the grandparents. So I want uh, you know, a little convertible for us to nip in around the city. Um, that car company will change your vehicle while you're asleep on Friday night. So when you wake up Saturday morning, the car has been swapped on the driveway and it's all set to your preferences, to, to your seat position, to your favorite radio station, and it's full of fuel. It's that sort of service that they're trying to offer. And I'm not saying that that's going to be cheaper than car ownership, but it's that on-demand. It's, it's giving you exactly what the consumer wants when they want it. So the car companies are completely changing their model. The second fold of the disruption is very much on, on the type of transportation you take. So if you split up you know, your, your journeys, if you like, into mileage brackets, the major disruption is happening in that one to five miles. And that's really because of the, this rise in micro-mobility. So one to five miles is a bit too far to walk, but it seems like an excessive or a small amount of miles for you to get in a vehicle. And then you've got to worry about parking and et cetera, et cetera. So these e-scooters and e-bikes are very much becoming prevalent in, in certainly in, in big cities where, where there's a lot of traffic. And I see the rise in micro-mobility being pretty significant. And then you've got the ride-sharing piece disrupting that sort of mileage sector between five and 15 miles. And then it's, the, it's really the plus 15 miles where you're either looking at the traditional car ownership model or you're looking at these leasing or subscription type programs. So it's just a, a disruption across the entire sector of transportation at the moment. 
and that's without even discussing autonomous vehicles. And presumably COVID is is only sort of kind of speeding that process up, as it were, because, you know, speaking personally, I've driven a total of about 10 miles in the last five months, but yet I'm still paying for my insurance, I'm still paying for my road tax, I'm still paying for everything else. I'll still pay for my service, my MOT when it comes along. And you think, well, it's a bizarre situation and a bizarre model. And even when I did drive, it was mostly, mostly in traffic jams. So, as you say, although I think I'm too old for an e-scooter, but... Uh, COVID is a great accelerator of micromobility because I think now people are, if I do need to go back to work, will I be willing to get on the tube if you live in London or any form of public transport? If I can get an e-bike or an e-scooter, would you choose that over you know, getting on a bus with, with a crowded number of people? So I think it's, a, it's an accelerator for micromobility solutions now that we're out of lockdowns, which is unbelievable. But your point to you haven't done much driving in, during COVID is a really interesting one from an insurance perspective. Because you know, you've seen certain insurance companies in the, in the personal motor side say, I'm going to return a lot of premium to you because it's the right thing to do because my risk has gone down because you're driving less miles than we envisaged you would drive when you took out your policy. What's fascinating that we're seeing because we're very big on data and we get regular data updates from the people we insure is that yes, the frequency of, of car accidents because of COVID might be down, but the actual severity could be up because of increased speeds through, through lower traffic uh, on the roads. You're seeing in New York, you know, I think speeding tickets in New York during COVID were up something like 50% just because of those increased speeds. So when you look at the big, big accidents that insurers could potentially pay, they could be up because of COVID. So it's, it's not as simple as saying there's less mileage, there's less risk. There's much more at play than that. A lot of these companies that you're talking about um, are startups, they're young companies, but what sort of insurance needs do they have and how, does, how, do, how do their needs differ from perhaps the traditional model? Yeah, um, I think what's different about um, the sort of sharing economy need is that it's not a purchase purely for, for balance sheet protection. That's the key for me. If, if a big uh, FTSE 100 company comes to buy insurance, it's typically purchased there. Um, it gives you know, confidence to the stakeholders. It allows them to protect their balance sheet, which is obviously hugely important. I think when you look at sharing economy platforms, the insurance purchase is purchased for different reasons. Uh, and it's, it's primarily purchased to create trust with its marketplace. So if you were to put your home on an accommodation sharing platform, would you be so willing to put your home on if you didn't think there was an insurance product, if there was damage to your home and someone got injured? So these sharing economy companies, these startups are actually putting their insurance at the front and center, and actually putting at the front of their website, we have insurance. If anything happens, please use our model because we want to grow. Another unique facet for them is, is the growth for them is normally exponential. From launch in 2012 for the ride-sharing companies to where they are today, it has been a humongous hockey stick of growth. And so for an insurance policy, insuring something that grows to that extent is quite daunting, but also needs a, a new solution. So you're typically looking at adjustable rating rather than flat and annual rating because you want to track that exposure upwards. Um, and then it's constantly exposing into new territories. A lot of these companies, because they're asset agnostic, they want global programs. So from an insurer, you're looking at global programs and, and, and that comes with all sorts of administration, licensing, regulation type stuff. But but ultimately, the startups that I tend to deal with, unfortunately for a lot of them, insurance does seem to be somewhat of an afterthought because they're very tech-orientated and want to hit the market as quickly as possible. And so a lot of our work is, is a huge education process. 
And our approach to that is trying to educate people why things work the way they do in insurance and how the different products look. And that can sometimes be a challenge as well. Oh, I, I can imagine. And, and presumably all of this is done without years of data, which insurers can rely on and feel comfortable with. So insurers, I guess, are, are being pushed outside of their comfort zone. So is it fair to say, therefore, that these companies are, are finding problems when they, when they come to the market looking for insurance? Yeah, definitely. And is it fair to say that they find the whole process of purchasing insurance a frustrating experience? Yeah, it, it is frustrating. And, and sometimes, you know, I try to leave my sort of Welsh passion at the door, if you like, and try not to take it personally that I'm the sort of bunt of all these frustrations when, when I'm actually trying to be the one to help them and create a solution. But they have, to, they have to voice their frustrations to someone, I suppose. And I think what that has caused is, is maybe a, a bit of a warning sign for the insurance industry. But also, the lack of data is, is something that can develop really quickly. So whilst they might not have data to launch, there's, there's plenty of data that w- the insurance world has that can use that as a benchmark, create proxies, you know, be willing to make assumptions, be creative and say, okay, this is what we could do and let's launch this product. Yes, are we actuarially 100% certain that this is how this is going to perform? Of course, we're not. But because of that, we can run it to a, a loss ratio to take you know, account for some of that volatility. But what I love about the sharing economy companies is because they have such an uh, an amazing access to data and their marketplace. They can pull out data once they're, once they're operational at such a higher level than insurance companies could ever dream of. So, you know, Uber can, and on the rideshare side or Lyft on the rideshare side or Amazon on deliveries and Deliveroo and all these companies, they're, they're pulling out huge amounts because of it's all phone-based. So they can pull out GPS data. They can look at sort of driving behavior if they have telematics. They can look at average speeds all this amazing data and you can start to build something that is a much more accurate reflection of the true exposure you're seeing than a standard traditional auto insurance or motor insurance product that would just be how many vehicles, this is your rate per vehicle, let's speak in 12 months. You know, our policies very much adjust on a monthly basis or a quarterly basis to constantly getting updates. Uh, And if you truly partner with somebody and you go on a journey with these sharing economy companies, then hopefully you have that flexibility to change things if indeed the data comes out and it isn't performing as you, as you would expect. Yeah, so it sounds as though the traditional insurance models are getting data around a big set of, of, of insureds, whereas I think what you're saying is that this approach that you adopt is far, far more bespoke, is, is personalised to the insured and based on their own data and, and therefore flexible at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. I think every product we, we provide now is bespoke. And it kind of has to be because the models are so bespoke. And you know, we have been guilty as an industry, I think, of creating you know, fantastic insurance products. But we've created insurance products, put them on our big insurance shelf and said, oh, pick whichever, client, you know, whichever one you want. And what happens there is that you know, some of the clients don't really understand what you're trying to build or what you're trying to sell. And you know, it's, it's a travesty that the COVID pandemic, you know, there were insurance products for many companies and it was available to many companies, but probably a product that wasn't understood and wasn't purchased. And whose fault is that? You know, I, I'm not here to comment on that, but I think with us, it's very much, we speak to a company, we try to be transparent and say, let's sit down. What do you need from the insurance product? Let's collaborate and see if we can create a product together. And if you get that sort of buying with your client, that should be a long-term client for you because you created a product that you both have ownership in and you're both invested in. So very much the approach we take is a partnership model. 
Yeah, I, and that's fascinating because we recorded a podcast last week with, with someone who's saying precisely that, that th- this is the model for insurance going forwards. It's not just providing a policy once a year, but building up a relationship and, and, and a long-term partnership. You mentioned about the hockey stick growth um, of these companies and, and for the sharing economy as a whole, how big a market are we talking about? Yeah, there's a lot of reports that you can go online and see. And I think one of the, the recent reports had the revenue for the sharing economy in 2015. I think this was a, a PwC report. And in 2015, it had the revenue for the sharing economy globally at $25 billion. And then expected by 2025, which doesn't seem too far away now, to be, to be $300 billion. And, and I think probably if that was updated, it'd be slightly higher. So it is truly... Um, you know, just a massive growth area. And I think it will continue to grow because of the, the millennial and then the Gen Z type generations and, and that continued culture of, I don't need to own my asset or I don't really want to drive my car if I can't. So can I use a rideshare service? Can I use a, a shared micromobility service? And do I really need to rush out and buy a house when I can use an, you know, an, an accommodation sharing app across the world to, to stay in different places? And so I, I, I see the acceleration definitely continuing. And I mean, obviously, these companies are, are hugely innovative in their own areas. But is it likely that they're going to take an innovative approach to insurance as well? I've, I've seen reports that some of the larger companies are getting frustrated with the insurance market and therefore setting up captives to, to protect their position in that way. Is, is that something that you're seeing? Oh, it's a, yeah, it's a key topic for us. And, and, and for iBot, we're very much exploring, creating solutions that, that will look at, at much more than just traditional risk transfer. And it will look at risk retention, alternative risk solutions, including captives. Um, I think it's a fascinating space. The part that motivates me in, in the space that I'm in, and I like to you know, think that we have a passion for innovation and, and challenging the status quo, but it's actually a quote from Elon Musk at Tesla that for me is, is what I'd have stuck up on my wall if, uh, if I was in my office just to keep me motivated. And, and his quote is, if the insurance world doesn't start realizing the true changes to risk that we are creating with new technology and new products, then we will insource insurance. So what he's trying to say is with all these advanced driver assist systems, autonomous vehicle technologies that are in Tesla vehicles, he doesn't feel like the insurance industry is pricing those correctly or giving the discounts for the safety improvements, in which case he's not believing in insurance. And we've all seen the, the recent news about DNO with, with Tesla. So it is a warning sign to say that, hey, we have a huge amount of capital. We have an amazing captive marketplace. We have a brand that's probably a little stronger than your brand because insurance and trust, and it hasn't got the, the finest reputation. I think we're still beating real estate agents, but we, we, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it is different. <laughs> and, and lawyers, probably. probably. Sorry, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> it's a warning sign to say that it is not beyond us to create our own insurance solution. And, and in the rideshare example, it is a great one because you know, we've seen the size of Uber and Lyft's captives that they've been able to build. And the reason they built them was because the insurance industry wasn't willing to give them the product they wanted or at the price they, they believed was correct. So I think that's an important thing for the insurance industry to realize is we do need to continue innovating, but we need to continue innovating with a door that's wide open for companies to come in and tell us what they want. Yeah. And that is what leads me to my next question, which is you talk about the innovation within the insurance industry. And that's clearly something that you're trying to do at iBot. And you've talked about some of them already, but what sort of innovations are you introducing and do you anticipate introducing in the next five years to make the insurance route, as opposed to the captive route, the more attractive one to these startups? Um, So from an innovation perspective, I think it can take 
multiple roles. You can have the innovation linked to the distribution of the insurance product. You can have the innovation in the products it's themselves and the coverage lines that you're covering. And then I think you can have that innovation in terms of the way that you're analyzing the risk and the way you're modeling and pricing the risk. So the innovation on the distribution side is is really interesting because if insurance was the blocker, for instance, for more people listing their homes on an accommodation sharing platform, then you better believe that those platforms are going to create an insurance solution that removes that hurdle. And so what I think you may see in the future is a lot of these companies either become their own insurance companies, or they may even become MGAs, so licensed agents of insurance companies. So you'll see a disruption potentially shift from somebody going to a retail broker to a wholesale broker into the market. And it will just be, well, I'm going to interact with that particular platform to buy my insurance. And you buy it through the app. And it'll be a click here. You list your home on an accommodation sharing platform, click here. And for one pound, your, your home is insured for that night. I think that sort of distribution innovation will happen. And we're certainly exploring and supportive of that. Then you will have, like I say, the, the actual products themselves will change. And we're starting to see that. So, you know, there's not been an e-scooter product specific to them. There wasn't a specific accommodation sharing platform. We had to completely manuscript a wording for that. And it had certain legal challenges for us, like who is a named insured? Are they an additional insured? Are they an additional named insured? How can I insure the, the property side of the risk? Because it's a third-party asset. It's not first party. So is it casualty? Is it property? There's, there's lots of different challenges there. So definitely we're having to rip up the, the playbook, so to speak, of the products that we have in a traditional sense and create new ones. And then you finally have the innovation on the, on the modeling. And what we're trying to say is, if you take a, an auto or a motor risk, and you normally rate per vehicle, or you might rate by mile, there's a huge amount more to the risk than just that. So what we're trying to look at is, okay, can we start segregating between key risk factors that we know make a material difference? So for a, a delivery risk, like a, you know, a food delivery, can we start saying, well, you get this rate for a day delivery, but we know nighttime driving is much higher, so we'll have a different nighttime delivery rate. You know, we can start looking at driving behavior, and that impacts the insurance cost. So that allows people to you know, start incentivizing their workforce to be safer and better at driving because they can make more money if they get better ratings. You know, having that sort of thing play into the insurance model to promote better practices. You can start looking at, can we now say, when you get into your, to your righteous, you get into an Uber and you say, right, I want to go from point A to point B. You could go one route and it's 15 pounds. But on that route, you're going through some pretty dangerous roads or some roads that statistically have more accidents. What if I was to take a different route and it's slightly longer, so it'll, get, it'll take you a little bit longer, but that cost now is down to £12 because our insurance model says that it's a lot safer to go there. The loss cost is reduced and that delta is that saving that you're going to get in the different pricing between the two journeys. So it's that sort of innovation that we're looking at. And that can only be done, like I said, with collaboration with the sharing economy platforms themselves, because that's going to take them to really embrace the product, build it into their tech and, and engineer it. It's phenomenal. It's transformational, really, because historically, insurance has been such as almost to encourage people to take risks. But what you're describing is, is an insurance that discourages people from taking risks, that encourages risk management and risk, risk avoidance, really. So, I mean, it's, it's a fascinating change. And as I was saying earlier on, that, that is part and parcel of insurance becoming personalized. Kind of, you, you have bespoke insurance 
for the needs of that particular insured. And it, it's, it's a fascinating change and it's being driven by technology. And I, I think it's amazing. And it, it'll be fascinating to see where, where things turn out in the next 10 years. I mean, presumably, I mean, do you see yourself as a, as a disruptor of, of the traditional insurance model? I like to think that we are certainly challenging the status quo and trying to disrupt the way that we approach insuring these platforms. If we applied a traditional approach, I don't think we'd be ultimately successful in the sharing economy. I think we have to adopt that openness to be transparent and say that this is what insurance looks like. And, and to your point about focusing on other areas of risk, let's not just focus on risk transfer. Let's focus on that risk control, risk avoidance, risk retention. If we can engage with someone and say, okay, what is your appetite for risk as a platform? And then we'll structure the product around you and what that risk retention looks like. And let's build a product that gives you the risk control and avoid certain risks. So we use telematics, like I say, and, and sometimes the insurance, I want them to grow, but I want to show them what growing safely looks like or growing profitably looks like. So if you take a delivery platform as an example, you might be able to have all these deliveries. And what these companies won't know is there are certain drivers in their platform that are having accidents, causing losses that ultimately increases their insurance costs. And when, if you broke down, you, you were able, to your point, the personalized insurance, if you were able to attribute what the insurance spend is against all these drivers, there may be drivers on their platform that it costs that platform more money to do that delivery with that driver than they generate. So it's actually a loss part of their model. If insurance could give them that sort of insight into that driver, I'm sure the platform would remove them immediately because it, it's losing money. And, and that's, great for the, that's great for everyone in society because you removed a poor driver from your roads. And it's great from insurance because it's ultimately lowering loss costs. So it's that sort of thing that, yeah, I, I suppose you could call it as disruptive to that point because we're not seeing many insurers engage on that basis. And I, presumably it also persuades people who are bad drivers to become better drivers as well. So as you say, it, it improves the skill set of the whole population. Insurance is a wonderful thing, isn't it? The social value <laughs> of insurance is it's great. It's great. Yes. Finally, Chris, we're coming to the end of the podcast. And if you're advising someone who, I don't know, an 18 or 19-year-old who's thinking about kind of getting involved in the insurance world, what pearl of wisdom would you pass on to them? Uh, I think uh, just be open to absolutely everything that is thrown at you, whether it's you know having some time in different lines of business, spending time in different teams, spending time in different places and yeah, always be asking questions and why, 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 why would be my advice because I just think it's um, an incredible place to learn but in, unless you're pushing people to, to understand the industry because if we're honest, it's incredibly complex and we make it far more complex than, than sometimes it needs to be and it is a daunting industry to enter because of it can be hierarchical and it can have a lot of tradition. And sometimes people you know, don't want to speak their mind. And, and maybe we are a bit guilty sometimes of group theory and things like that. So I'd just say, come in with a, a fresh approach, be willing to challenge principles that insurance have relied on for a long, long time, because I think we are primed for innovation now. I think there will be some disruption in the industry. And what I really hope is there's some new and fresh and, and, and diverse talent that, that enter the industry willing to come in and, and embrace that change because I, I think that will be ultimately that's going to what benefit our industry and drive us forward. Brilliant. Chris, that was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Thank you very much indeed. No, thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to Insurance Covered. Insurance Covered is an RPC production recorded and edited by Mary Mitchell. 
We couldn't do this without Joe Burgess, Sean Alberts, and of course, our guests. Thanks to them. If you want to be a guest or have any feedback for us, please contact us on podcast at rpc.co.uk. Finally, please rate, share and review it. And please subscribe so that you can ensure receiving future episodes. Thank you.